Okay, let's just bow our hearts one more time as we come before God's Word together. Well, Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to read the Scripture together. And Lord, we thank you that this is a book that brings life. Lord, it's a book that exposes us as we really are. It's like a mirror that reveals the, the human condition for what it really is. But it's also a book that reveals that there is an answer. That, Lord, you had a plan from before the foundation of this world to save a people for yourselves. And, Lord, we just thank you this morning that those who have named the name of Christ, those who have put their trust in Jesus for their salvation, have this wonderful eternity awaiting us. And, Lord, as we continue to look this morning in this wonderful book that, by your grace, we're studying, Lord, as we look, we just pray that you would reveal more of yourself, more of what awaits us, Lord, and just help us to be focused on these things, Lord, not on the things of the earth. Your word speaks of us setting our mind on things above. So this morning, help us to do that. And not just for the time we're here, but as we go through this coming week. Lord, we just give you this time. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the previous session, we saw a glimpse of heaven. John is caught up and told, come up here and see the things which must be hereafter, after these things, literally. Literally, after the, the things of the church, the things of the church age. John is given this divine breakdown of the, the book of Revelation. He's told to write the things which had been, that's the vision that he recalls in chapter 1, the things that are, well for John that was the things that, that existed at that time and was of course the seven churches that he writes to, which as we've seen already depict the seven historical ages of the church through history. You know, there's no debate on that because you, know, you look back and you see that those churches fit like a glove the various ages that the church and the, the stages the church has gone through, and as we've seen already, also maps Israel's history. God has shown us that, just as Solomon said, that which has been will be, and there's nothing new under the sun. In essence, we've made the same mistakes that Israel made, even though Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 10 and various other places, don't make those same mistakes. Sadly, the church has done just the same as Israel did. John, then, we saw is immediately, and if I may include that in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, because that's really what immediately means, isn't it? He's immediately before the throne, and I think that whole picture there speaks of the, the moment of the rapture of the church as well, when we'll be taken from this world to be before the throne in heaven. And John, in his vision, sees this one sat upon the throne. And, you know, we're given descriptions of all sorts of wonderful things in heaven, but John just notices immediately the one on the throne. That's where his attention and focus goes. Nothing else is of any real consequence. So the fact that the focus in chapter 4 really is on the throne and the one who sits on the throne. As we move into chapter 5, we're going to see that the focus is going to shift. We'll mention that in a moment. But up until this point, John has been looking at it's the triune God. God, Father, Son, Spirit. And that's very much seen in the chorus that these angelic beings, these living creatures sing. They sing, holy, holy, holy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And of course it's God that is sat on the throne there. But as John's eyes seem to kind of adjust from this sheer brilliance of everything he's looking at, it's as if he becomes aware now of what I believe is probably the most awesome sight in time and eternity, which is what we're going to look at in a moment this morning. 
Now John has described in the, the previous chapter, in chapter 4, the brilliance of the scene that he's looking at. He says it's like pure jasper. That's the best way he can describe it. This brilliant, uh, just transparent um, just light, really, that he's looking at. But at the same time, he says that it's, it's like a sardine stone. It's blood red as well. And that seems to be suggestive of the impending wrath that's about to be poured out on this unbelieving and Christ-rejecting world. And that's what we're going to go and see in the remainder of the book. But interestingly, John's not the first one, seemingly, to see this incredible scene in heaven. We alluded to this last time, but in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 4, we find that Paul also is caught up into heaven. Now, Paul simply says that on that occasion, he can't tell us what he saw. He says, effectively, it wouldn't be right to utter it. What he saw was so amazing, so just beyond description, naturally. In other words, he just couldn't put it into justice. Now, we're grateful that it's John that gets the, this, this revelation because at least he tries to give us some explanation. But you get this idea from what Paul says that even with the best that John has done to describe it, John has come so far short of really explaining the, the majesty, the glory, just the, the utter brilliance of this scene that he's staring at. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 16 Paul is writing to Timothy. And he speaks there of God dwelling in this effectively this magnificent clothing of light. And he says that no man can approach. Some translations have it, unapproachable brightness. Or unapproachable light. That's the, the light that, that God is dwelling in. And that, that's kind of the only real glimpse that Paul gives us of his experience. But it's, I believe, the same thing as, as Paul was looking at God on the throne, as John now tries to describe it for us. Now last time also we looked at this issue with the 24 elders that are very much a prominent feature of the chapter 4. Now, we said that these 24 elders are representative of the church. I just want to mention this again because it's a very important point uh, from a doctrinal perspective. Um, now, firstly, the elders were told are clothed in white raiment, and that's specifically given to the church. We don't find any other created being is made this promise of being clothed in white raiment. But as you can see there, at least four occasions in Scripture, this is promise given to the church, to believers, that we will be clothed in white raiment. So just that point alone would be a strong indication that these elders are representative of the church. Secondly, they have these crowns of gold on their heads which again are only promised to believers in Scripture. You don't find crowns are promised to angels or any other created being. So that would be enough to satisfy us. But we go on because we then find that the cry is that they're redeemed to God by the blood of the Lamb. Well, that could only refer to the church. It doesn't apply to any other created being. No angel can make that declaration. Fourthly, we're told that they're from every kindred, tongue, people and nation. Again, that proves them to be the church. It also helps us understand that this is just a representative group. These 24 are representative. Now, it may be, as some have suggested, that we have the, the 12 apostles to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, to represent the Old Testament saints, and then we have the 12 apostles to represent the New Testament believers. And that may be the case. Certainly when we look at the New Jerusalem, we'll find that the names of both groups are embossed around the, the city, the, on the, these, these stones that are laid on the foundations and on the gates and so on. So we'll look at that in detail when we get to the end of the book. And just to mention as well that back in Chronicles, David divided the priesthood 
into 24 courses, representative of the entire priesthood. He represented the musicians that served in worship to God into 24 groups, again, representative of the whole. So it's not an uncommon thing in Scripture to see that 24 representing the whole. Of course, we have 24 hours in our day representative of the whole day. So there's a number of times we see this used. Fifthly, we're told that we, the church, are to be kings and priests to God, and that's exactly what's said of these 24 elders. And that they will reign on the earth, which again is a promise that's given to believers. Sixthly, we find that in the other recorded visions of heaven that we find in the Old Testament, now particularly in Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 11, and so on, we find that the other heavenly creatures mentioned in Revelation are also found there. So the cherubim, the seraphim, the angels but no 24 elders. They're not seen in heaven. Now, that's very consistent with what we find from Scripture because we know that the church is hidden in the Old Testament. Jesus himself alludes to that in uh, Matthew 13 when he started to speak about the parables, which is really unveiling the church again. And we find also in the book of Ephesians that it's made very clear that the church was a mystery hidden in the Old Testament. So it's not surprising that in the Old Testament visions of heaven, there is no sign of these 24 elders, if indeed they are representative of the church. And then, seventhly, the 24 elders are sitting on thrones. And the word is translated seats in the King James, but the Greek word is thronos, simply means throne. It's used that way at the beginning of verse 4. And back in Revelation 3.21, we're told there, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and has sat down with my father in his throne. So, again, another verse that implies that we will be sat with Jesus around his throne, with him in his throne. So, another verse that would imply that these elders are quite clearly the church. And that promise is not, again, given to any angelic being. Finally, the term elder, the Greek word presbyteros, is used 66 times in the New Testament, 12 times in this book, is always used to describe an older senior or elder in connection with seniority or maturity in the church. So to use the word elder of any other group would be inconsistent if it's not meaning the church. So I think we can rest the case quite clearly that these elders that we're looking at in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 are speaking of the church. Now what's significant is that that being the case, the church are seen in heaven before the tribulation begins. And that's consistent with everything else we read in Scripture. You know, you find way back in Genesis, as God comes to speak to Abraham to tell him about what's going to happen with Solomon, Gomorrah, and so on, he reveals to him. And, and Abraham goes through that little bargaining thing with God. Well, look, God, if there's, there's 50 righteous there, would you spare the city? And he kind of works all the way down. And Eventually, we, we kind of get to that conclusion that the God of all the earth will, will not do that which is unjust. And of course, God... We'll only do that, which is right, and we find that he removes the righteous before he brings judgment. Always been the case. Even with Jerusalem, at the time of the Babylonian captivity, those who were righteous were carried away to Babylon. And on the surface, it may seem that was in judgment, but actually it was the ones that stayed to suffer the judgment. Those that went were actually protected and looked after and cared for, and eventually they got to return home. So we find a number of these parallels through Scripture. But not least, Jesus speaks of a a time that we would escape, a time of of judgment that we can escape from. So all of those Scriptures, and there's so many verses that we can pull to, to see this, would indicate quite clearly that the church is removed before the time of tribulation on earth 
begins. Let's uh, move then into chapter 5, the throne room of the universe. We're going to see the, the focus now shifts from the throne itself to what seems to be some legal proceedings that are taking place in the throne room of God. So we read verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. The word book there is Biblion, it's sometimes uh, referred to or translated as a scroll, which seems to be what it is. Uh, typically, it comes from the, the this word is uh, from the papyrus plant, which is what eventually makes paper. Um, these strips of the papyrus were laid out long ways, and uh, vertically and horizontally laid out, left to dry, and then when they were dried, you would write on them. Now, typically, one side was smooth, one side was, was often rough, so you'd write on the smooth side. And yet, this document we find is written on both sides. They were grown along the, the riverbanks, um, particularly in Egypt and elsewhere, um, but it was, uh, became really the, the predecessor to, to the paper that we are familiar with and obviously use today. But this led to obviously parchment as we know it. Now, in the Roman Empire, to use parchment in this way and to write on both sides would indicate that this was a, a will, a testament, or a legal document of some description. It was also the practice of Rome, and there's a number of historical records to Roman wills and so on being sealed with seven seals. You're familiar with that. Of course, you have this kind of wax or clay. You put it on the, the document to, to seal it, to stop it being opened. And seemingly, this document has been sealed with seven seals that need to be broken in order for the reading of this document for the claiming or, or whatever this document is to, to reveal. But as it was with Rome, only one who was worthy, only one who was authorised would be able to open the document and break the seals. To break the seals if you weren't the intended recipient, very much like in, in receipt of a letter today. If a letter arrives and it's not addressed to you, you're not legally allowed to open it. In just the same way. But it's interesting because this document is clearly an important document. Because notice where it is. It's in the right hand of God. I mean, that straight away tells us that this is something that we should be taking note of. Something of great significance, great importance. I believe what we have here is the title deed to the earth. And let me explain why. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 30, we find that God passes the title of the newly created earth over to Adam. Adam is put in charge. Adam is given this world, to have dominion over this world. But then we find that through his pride and jealousy, Satan sets about usurping man and causing Adam to forfeit his inheritance. There's a number of scriptures we can look at in connection with that, but a couple of very clear ones in 2 Corinthians 4.4 and also in Luke 4. Luke 4 is the, the passage where we find Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And on both occasions, there's this claim that the earth for now is Satan's. When Satan's tempting Jesus, he makes this offer of giving him the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't say, well, you can't do that, it's not yours. Jesus effectively acknowledges that for now, the kingdoms of this world do belong to Satan. And Satan on that occasion, doing what he always does, trying to offer something that is right and proper, but in an improper way. Isn't that how Satan so often works with temptation? offers you something that, that God has created that is good, that is right, but offers you in a way that is wrong. You see, Jesus knew that one day he would inherit the kingdoms of this world. Satan was just offering a shortcut. And that's what Satan so often does. 
But Jesus, again, doesn't contest that Satan for now owns the, the kingdoms of this world. Luke uh, Corinthians 4.4 4 speaks of Satan being the god of this world. We're told us where that he's the prince of the power of the air. For now he has dominion in this world. Now, according to the rules of inheritance that God himself established, and we find recorded in the Torah, we're told there that if thy brother be waxen poor and has sold away some of his possession, and if any of his kin come to redeem it, then shall he redeem that which his brother sold. Now this is an interesting scripture. It's saying that if somebody, through whatever situation, has had to give up some land, then a family member has the right to come and buy it back. Of course, they've got to buy it back for the cost for which it was sold. In the book of Ruth, one of the most amazing verses in the Bible, Ruth chapter 2 verse 1 says, And Naomi had a kinsman. I mean, just, just stop for a second. Naomi, you're familiar, had given up her land. Her husband, Elimelech, and her and their two boys, Marlon and Gillian, had left. They'd gone off to Moab and tried to escape the famine that was in the land. Elimelech and the boys had died and they obviously married at that point. And you know the story that Orpha decides not to come back, but Ruth comes back with Naomi back into the land. But they come back poor. There was this land that was once theirs, but they can't afford to, to buy it back. And then you know the story how Ruth then goes and happens to work in this particular field. You, know, you see God working behind the scenes. I think the, the rabbis say that coincidence is not a, co- a kosher word. Yeah, and so Ruth ends up in this relationship with, with Boaz. And then Boaz decides that he's going to buy the land back. And yeah, the whole book of Ruth is an incredible model of God's plan of redemption. You see, Naomi had forfeited the land. But then in steps Boaz, whose name means strength, who's this wealthy kinsman. He's a relative, so he's legally entitled to come and, if he chooses, to buy the land back again. So he ends up doing that. He does purchase the land back. He redeems it. But not because he wanted the land, but because he wanted a bride. You see the picture? You see God's plan? You see, Jesus, as we're going to see, is our kinsman, redeemer. And that which he did, he didn't just do for the land, he did it because he wanted a bride. Just as we have in Matthew 13, the parable of the the man who bought the field. Not because of the field, because of that which was in it. See, Adam, in the same way, had become poor. He'd been forced to give up his possession. And only a kinsman was entitled to claim back the land. So he had to have somebody who was a relative of Adam. But he'd also have to be able to redeem it. So there's two criteria that has to be met here. One, we have to have a relative, but then we have to have somebody that is also able to redeem it. That would mean paying the price for which it had been sold. That price was sin. That was what had caused Adam to forfeit and lose the land. Ultimately, the, the price to purchase it back was death. It required blood being shed. God had said to Adam that in the day that you sin, you shall die. And ultimately, Adam died spiritually at that point, but we have this 
plan laid down through the whole of the Old Testament that God himself initiates the first blood sacrifice. Effectively, he says to Adam and Eve, I will take the blood of these innocent animals and he clothes them with their skins. He said, I'll take their blood instead of your blood. And of course, by the time we get to the law, it's all codified for us and that sets up for us the, the sacrificial system. I mean, even before the law, we know with the Cain and Abel, it wasn't just that Cain hadn't worked very hard, Cain had worked really hard to bring this offering that he presented to God. But the problem was it wasn't a blood sacrifice. It didn't meet the criteria. It wasn't just that Abel was a shepherd, it was that he understood that the price for atonement was blood. It was offering blood instead of his own. And all the way through, and then of course with the law, and we read so much in the Torah, and particularly in Leviticus, the blood was to be an atonement for sin. But it was only a temporary covering. The writer to the Hebrews makes that very clear. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin, and it can never purge the conscience. Of course, Jesus does both. We'll see in a minute, but when John the Baptist looks up and sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not atones for, not covers over, but takes away. Now we, we might miss that little subtlety in the text, but I'm sure that the Jewish rabbis, the leaders at the time, did not miss what John was saying. John wasn't just saying, here is somebody that is going to cover sin. He's going to take it away, and that's exactly what Jesus did. So, back to the scenario here. Only a sinless kinsman of Adam could redeem the land. You see the, the problem that we face. The title of the earth belongs to Satan, for now. And unless a sinless kinsman of Adam could be found, then forever the title of the earth would remain with Satan. Verse 2 says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. I just stop for a second. A strong angel. I mean, I think any of us saw an angel. I mean, every time you see an angel in Scripture, the first thing they say is, fear not. Gives you the impression that people seeing angels are a little bit on edge. This is a strong angel. A powerful angel. God chooses somebody here, a, a creative being, to proclaim something because everybody has got to hear this. You know, this really is a, an announcement being made. Almost in time and eternity. This proclamation with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? You know, it's a little bit like that moment you get in a wedding service, isn't it? Where the minister suddenly says, If anybody know any just cause or impediment why these two may not be joined together, you should now declare it. It's kind of that type of thing. This is your moment. If anybody knows of anybody who is worthy to open the book, now's the time. And God chooses a strong angel to make this declaration, so nobody's going to miss it. It's not a trivial occasion by any means. And verse 3 says, And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. That's a little worrying. But let's just look for a second where they looked. Firstly, we're told they looked in heaven. Well, this is interesting because it proves that men are in heaven. Because they're looking for a man. Notice. Why? Because we have to have a kinsman. It has to be a kinsman of Adam. Adam lost title to the earth. And this is another reason why we understand this is the title deed of the earth. Because it's a man that we're looking for. But we're looking in heaven for a man. Well, 
strong suggestion that then this is occurring after the rapture of the church and men, the redeemed, are in heaven at this point. Notice also then, we look in earth. Well, that's not surprising because earth is the usual abode of mankind. It's our usual dwelling. And so, all earth is searched out to find somebody who is worthy. Oh, there's lots of people that are good. They do good things. I talk to my Muslim colleagues at work and they tell me how they are going to get to go to heaven because God one day is going to look at their good works and weigh it against their bad works. I say, do you gamble in any other areas of your life? Because that's such a big gamble, isn't it? Do you make the assumption that you've done more good things than bad things? And what exactly is the measure or the scale you're working to? And if, of course, God then just says, He's gonna just, you've just edged it on your good works, well then what about the bad works? Do we just ignore those? If God ignores those, that makes God unjust. It's the big problem that Muslims have. It's the problem of sin. If their God allows anyone into their heaven, he's unjust. Because he's a God who just turns a blind eye to sin. The God of the Bible says that sin has to be paid for. And the judgment upon sin is eternal separation from a holy God. See, the Bible doesn't give us some candy-coated version. It gives us the reality of how it is, that we have fallen short of God's standard, of God's glory, and we are deserving of God's judgment and God's wrath. The other place that they look is under the earth. Now, this is interesting because it's another one of those scriptures that strongly suggests that Hades, Sheol, the pits, a number of words we have translated in scripture for us, is a physical place. It's geocentric, literally the centre of the earth. Later on in the book of Revelation, we're going to read of a bottomless pit. Where where could you have a bottomless pit? Well, the only place you can have a bottomless pit will be in the centre of the earth, because any direction from there will be up. There is no bottom, because the moment you move away from any direction, you're going up. And there's so many references in the Bible. In Numbers, the situation with Korah, his rebellion against Moses and Moses' leadership. Moses was a humble man. Moses didn't plead with God, asked with God, ask God for this position. He didn't have to apply for the job. In fact, when God comes and says, Moses, I want you to do this job, lead the children of Israel, Moses says, I don't want the job, please. And God ends up getting quite cross with him. And Korah raises up against him. And we find the earth opens up and Korah goes alive down into the pit. There's always these expressions of going down into the earth, down into the grave. Jesus himself also went, descended into the lower parts of the earth, we're told. So this holding place has existed prior to the cross, where there was this divide, there was the righteous and there was the wicked, those who had been looking forward to Christ's coming, and of course those who had died rejecting God. We talked about that before, we won't sidetrack the study this morning by going into that, but a very interesting study in itself to look at those details. We're told that Jesus led captivity captive. Jesus didn't go down into the earth to suffer. That's what some people teach. Jesus paid for it all on the cross. That's why he said to tell us that it is finished. He didn't have to do anything else when he went to the lower parts of the earth. The only reason he went there was to present himself to these believers who'd been looking forward to his coming. The likes of David who'd prophesied so much and of Daniel and so many others in the Old Testament that had been looking for the coming of the Messiah. Those saints, I believe, are now in heaven, waiting for the rapture of the church. We're told that in verse, to verse Thessalonians, verse 4, that the dead in Christ shall rise first, and 
God's going to bring them back from heaven. They don't have bodies yet. They're just spirits, but they're going to be given bodies at the time of the rapture. That resurrection of this old, corruptible flesh is transformed and puts on this new form. We receive our new bodies, fit for eternity. But in all of these places that are looked, there is no one that's found worthy. Well, it's no surprise, is it? I mean, it's exactly what we read in Scripture, Psalm 14, verse 2 and 3. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and see God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that does good, no, not one. So there you are. It's really simple. There is nobody that is worthy. Nobody that is good. We've all fallen short of God's standard. Paul, quoting that verse in Romans 3, says this, As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're all together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. But then, Paul carries on a few verses later, verse 19, and he says, Now we know that whatsoever the laws, whatsoever things the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Paul says the law is given to show that we're guilty. Just in case anyone thinks, actually, I'm not so bad. Well, just compare yourself with God's law. Look at the Ten Commandments for a start, but look at any aspect of the law. You don't measure even to your own standards, let alone God's. And so we see very clearly that no one is found worthy. So back to Revelation, we've got a real problem. And it's amplified in verse 4 because John records this. He says, and I wept much. This is really quite something. In the Greek, effectively John is saying he sobbed convulsively. Now we might not get that at first reading. John did. He understands exactly what this means. You know, the strong angels declared, is there anybody that is worthy? And a search is made and nobody's found worthy. And John starts weeping. Because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. I think John gets this, that if we don't find a kinsman of Adam who had the right to redeem the earth by being a kinsman, but also was able and worthy to do so, earth is going to stay in the hands of its current owner, Satan, for eternity. Well, till as long as he destroys it, which is exactly what Satan would do if left alone. You see, now hopefully we start to understand why John was so upset. This isn't just a trivial thing. I think John recognises the seriousness of this moment. That unless somebody is found worthy, effectively Satan wins. That's horrific to just stop to think about the consequence. Just notice as well, as an aside here, John is crying. Where is he? In heaven. I thought when we get to heaven there won't be any more tears. Well, Actually, if you look in Scripture, what you find is in Revelation 21, when we get to the new heavens and the new earth, it's then that every tear will be wiped away. That's when the crying will be over. You see, when we get to heaven, 1 Corinthians 3 implies that there is going to be some weeping by believers that have lived lives sowing to the flesh. You know, we're going to be tried, our works will be tried Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay and straw. Now if you've been sowing to the Spirit, if you've been living your life for godly things, if you've been laying up treasure in heaven, we're told that we'll receive a reward. 
But if you've been living your life for worldly things, when you have that opportunity, when you stand before the throne, and we looked at this in detail last week, you have nothing. I believe there will be weeping. I believe there will be tears. There will be regret as we look back at those wasted opportunities we've had through this life. Even as we look back and we see the result of our unfaithfulness and our unfruitfulness when we didn't go to people and share the gospel, when we could have done, when we were a little bit more concerned about our name than his name. Now there will be tears in heaven to start with until the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 5, and one of the elders, now notice this, it's one of the elders that comes to speak to John. And says, don't cry, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to lose the seven seals thereof. Now this isn't just some little uh, nice title he's giving here to Jesus. He comes to try to explain to John two important things. And just first of all, let me mention this. John 15, 15 says this, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Daniel is called a friend of God and he has revealed incredible details prophetically of what's going to come. John also is referred to as a friend of Jesus. And he here has also revealed these details of what is going to come. I think we have this privilege, as John 15, 15 tells us, that we have that incredible privilege of being called a friend. And it's not just a, a casual thing, because God has revealed to us things that are going to come as well. And he's one of the elders who understands these things. Now bear in mind, we're looking at things yet future. We're not told which one of the elders. If it's true, and it seems to be so clearly the case from Scripture, that these elders are representative of the church, which one of the elders is it? One of them is in tune enough with God's plan and God's word that when he sees John crying, he says, John, don't worry, because God has got a plan. The line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed. Now, these titles here, these two titles are given to answer those two problems that we have. One is to answer the worthy requirement. That's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Drawn from Genesis 49, verses 9 through 12. We'll look at the description in just a moment. The other one is there to answer the kinsman requirement. The root of David. You see... We're looking for somebody who is a family member, a descendant of Adam. That's the root of David. That box is ticked. But we've also got the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's look at those scriptures. Let's look first in Genesis 49. Now this is a prophecy that Jacob gives over his children. But you see it's prophetically looking to Jesus. It says, Judah is the lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion and as an old lion. Who shall rouse him up? And then we're told, the scepter shall not part from Judah, nor a lawgiver from before his, between his feet until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall be gathered, shall the gathering of the people be. There was a real stir in Israel, around about 6 AD, as the Romans took away the right to execute capital punishment that position of lawgiver, the scepter, departed from Israel. And the rabbis at the time, which recorded, 
were distraught because they said that the scepter has departed, but Shiloh has not come. The Messiah has not come. What they didn't realise was that up the road in carpenter shop in Nazareth, the Messiah had come. They just weren't aware of it. Prophecy carries on. Binding his foal unto the vine and his ashes colt unto the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth white with milk. Just speaking of the judgment, of the authority, of the power of the one who is coming. In Isaiah we read of the root of David. We read verse 1 of chapter 11. And there shall come forth a root out of the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the spirit sorry, and, and of the fear of the Lord. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither approve after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the weak of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. Jesus meets both criteria. He is both the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who has been promised of God. He's the Messiah. He's sinless. He's perfect. And he's also a kinsman of Adam. He, we're told, prevailed. Implies struggle. And of course Jesus did go through that struggle. You think of the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus endured that. He went to the cross. He died on the cross. He took upon himself the wrath that we deserved. He died the death that we deserve to die. But then he rose again from the dead. And we're told that he prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Jesus has prevailed and is now legally entitled to claim the title of the earth. He's paid the price. Now, it's not until later in the book of Revelation that Jesus will claim the earth back for himself. But this is the the legal proceeding effectively taking place. The now title reverts to Jesus. And then later in the book, as we get there, we'll see that Jesus will then claim the earth back for himself. The seven seals, as they start to be opened, as Jesus starts to take this document and break the seals, we'll see the beginning of these judgments that God is going to pour out on this world. And then John says, I beheld and lo. Now that's... Maybe we skip over these things sometimes. John is saying, I looked, look at this, listen to this, this is incredible. In the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent forth into all the earth. The, The horns typically speak of authority. The horn was seen something to represent strength. Seven, of course, in Scripture meaning complete. Complete strength. And then these seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. Sent forth into all the earth. Some think that there's also an, a, a veiled reference there to these seven angelic beings. The angels are going to be sent forth. Also that we'll see a little bit further on in Revelation. But the point is, as John's vision starts to maybe just break through the brilliance of all the things he's seeing before the throne. He just sees there a lamb standing 
Up until now, Jesus has been standing at the right hand of the Father, but now he sees this lamb. Now, I believe it's 28 times in the book of Revelation we find this title. It's the title Jesus uses most of himself, the Lamb of God. John really is taken aback by this sight. But I want you to realise that what we've got here is just such an incredible sight. I think it's probably the most awesome sight in eternity that we're ever going to see as we get to be before the throne. And I think this is the moment everything is going to become clear. As you look upon this lamb, as you have been saying, the word lamb, there's a couple of words that are used in Greek for lamb. This is a young baby lamb, a defenseless, defenseless lamb, as it has been saying, literally bearing the marks of slaughter. It's not a pleasant sight to look upon, but as you look upon this lamb, as you think about all the hurts and all the troubles you've experienced in life, suddenly every question will be answered in an instant. All the pain you've experienced in life will suddenly be put into perspective. You see, we're going to look upon this defenseless lamb, this lamb who went to the cross, who was dumb, effectively didn't speak a word in his own defence. And we're going to realise his love for us. We're going to realise the Father's love for us. You know, those times when you've gone, God, why do you allow this to happen? Why did you take a, a loved one from me? Or why have you allowed this particular situation to occur in my life? You know, we experience all sorts of disappointments and sometimes we do go to God, Lord, why did you allow this? Well, I guarantee you, this moment when you're looking at this lamb as it's been slain and you suddenly realise the love that God had for you, that he allowed his own son to bear the weight of your sin, you'll suddenly realise just the overwhelming love that the Father has for you and that Jesus had to endure, to go through this. I really believe that all pain and suffering will be understood for us in this moment. You know, we, we may list our complaints to God of why this has happened and that has happened. And You know, Don McClure, a Carrot Chapel pastor, was uh, speaking, uh, it's one of my favourite messages, he's talking on Acts uh, 20 verse 24, great scripture in itself. But he, he just says that, you know, he's gone through various challenges in his life. There was a time when he really wanted to have children. He said his wife at that time wasn't so, so keen. He said probably because she didn't want to have more of, of him. Um, and he just really kind of started nagging her and quoting scriptures at her and things. And eventually she gave in and they, they got pregnant. But then they lost a child. She had a miscarriage. And he was so distraught. He went out walking with God one day and he was just, just pouring his heart out and saying, God, why? Why have you allowed this? And various other events occurred in his life. He got to the stage that he, he had to have one of his eyes um, doesn't work now. And um, if, I, if I remember, I think one of his kidneys were removed and his various other things. And he said, just imagine you kind of getting there before the throne. He said, he said before actually you get led into heaven, he said, and... You get Peter and John and the other apostles. They say, look, you know, let's get everybody together in a big meeting, big auditorium. Before you go into heaven, has anybody got any issues or any complaints? And up on stage you see the apostles, all of which met horrible deaths. You know, Peter was crucified upside down and Thomas was flayed and dragged behind chariots. And, and then the likes of Isaiah who was sawn in half and he says, Don said, you know, typically, he said, I know what's going to happen, so I'm going to be in the front row. He said, they're going to say, 
Has anybody got any complaints? Then, you know, Don, did you have something to say? And he said, you know, that point, no, 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 nothing to say. He said, you're looking at these people that have given their lives for Jesus and you complain about some of these things that you've endured. Well, that's just looking at other saints who have given their lives to Christ when it comes to looking at Jesus himself. Any problem, any trial you've ever endured will suddenly be put into context. And you'll see everything as it truly is. Just take away from this morning this situation, this moment when you're looking at this lamb with the marks of slaughter on it, born because of us. You know, we sometimes think that God doesn't understand. He doesn't feel our pain. When you look at this lamb as it has been slain, you will know that God understands. God understands pain. God understands loss. God understands suffering. More than any of us ever could. There's no way this morning my words can do justice to this scene, but I just encourage you just to spend a moment, maybe even before you go to bed tonight, just look at this verse and just spend some time with the Lord. Think about what this scene really means. And whatever it is you're going through, whatever trial you have, put it into context. Because he loves you more than you can possibly know. So much that he allowed his only son to go through this incredible, painful death, bearing the weight of our sin upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. You know, for, for some of us this morning, the trials we go through, this is as close to hell as we'll ever get. You know, sometimes we talk about, we glibly talk about, you know, hell on earth or this situation, like hell or whatever. You know, but this is as close to hell as we'll ever get. You know, for people in the world, actually, for many of them who will reject Jesus, this is as close to heaven as they're ever going to get. We've got a wonderful eternity awaiting for us. Verse 8, we carry on. And when he had taken the book... And the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the throne, having every one of them harps and golden vials, full of odours which are the prayers of the saints. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. Jesus comes and takes this book. Now, just a couple of just mentions here in this verse. We, these vials are going to be poured out upon the earth. But notice that we're told here that these Vials, these golden vials, full of odours, are the prayers of the saints. You may sometimes think that your prayers are not being answered. Everything is being recorded. God is just. God, is, God will deal with all of the iniquity, all of the injustice in this life and in this world. All of the things that Satan has engineered and, and brought upon us. All the things that we've done ourselves. All the things that mankind has done. The world, the flesh, the devil. Those three things, yeah? Every prayer is recorded. And God will mete out judgment upon this earth accordingly. So don't think that your prayers are not heard. Notice again in verse 8 that the four and twenty elders fall down. We're going to spend an awful lot of time falling down. We get up and then we fall down again and we get up and we fall down again. There's a, a lovely song we sing. And I do love the song. I can only imagine. Will I stand in his presence or to my knees will I fall? Well, the answer is we will fall. We will fall down before the Lamb in worship and adoration. Then we get to verse 9. They sing a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain 
and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Now firstly, just to point out here, the focus of this, thou art worthy, is not because Jesus was a good teacher. It's not because of the things that are recorded or written. It's because he was slain. It was because he went through this for us. And as we look at that lamb as it had been slain, all the other things will kind of fade away. And the cry will be, you are worthy because you died for us. That will be that focus for us at that moment in heaven. Nothing else will seem important. And that he's purchased us back, redeemed us. Remember, we needed a kinsman redeemer. He's redeemed us to God, purchased us back by thy blood. Now, I just need to back up to the previous verse again because if we look, we need to look at the context. When he had taken the book, the four beasts, the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them um, harps, or by the way, we're going to be playing instruments, guitars, stringed instruments, whatever. That's why I think the churches are full of guitar-playing worship leaders these days. We're getting ready. If you don't play anything now, don't worry about it. God's going to give you the ability. And we have these harps, these golden vials full of orders, the, the prayers of the saints. Okay, now look, which are the prayers of the saints... Now that's the last context that's being referenced. He came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne and they, who's the they? It's the saints. They sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book. Now notice this has to be the saints and to open the seals thereof for thou wast slain and has redeemed us to God. It doesn't apply to any angelic being by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God, kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now, I need to just highlight this, because there's a little bit of controversy over this verse. And you'll find in certain translations, at the bottom it will say, that not in the, the most authoritative manuscripts or not in the best manuscripts or whatever. And, and it translates this verse, that has redeemed them to God. That has made them kings and priests. And they shall reign on the earth. Now that's quite a big important issue. It's not just a, a side issue. It's not just a trivial point. It's something that I believe that Satan has tried to engineer because actually, if this is not the church speaking then again there's an implication that we are not in heaven. If this is the church, and one theologian who didn't hold to a pre-tribulational rapture position, he himself acknowledged that if this should be us, then very clearly the church is in heaven before the tribulation. Now, Joe Foch, another Calvary Chapel pastor in America, from Calvary Chapel Philadelphia, was talking to a friend of his, a friend of his who's a, a Greek scholar, and he'd been teaching through this book and he'd had a phone call from someone who said he'd been listening to his uh, messages on Revelation. He said, oh, I noticed that you said us in verse 9 and 10. He said, yes, that's right. He said, well, did you know that a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing? And his friend said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, did you know, he said, that there's 95 Greek manuscripts that, from which the book of Revelation is translated. He said, yes. He said, that's, that's, that's the case. I didn't know that. He said, well, did you know that this word was translated 
doesn't appear in, in many of them. It's not, in, it's not as us. His friend comments, he said, yes, he said, but out of the 95 Greek manuscripts, he says there's only 24 that have chapters 4 and 5 in them at all. And in, out of those 24, 23 of them say us. The only one that doesn't say us is the Alexandrinus that came from Alexandra in Egypt. It was the, the home of the Gnostics. And yet, incredibly, 95% of all the manuscripts we have that include this verse, the, the complete manuscripts, 95% say us, and yet, almost every modern translation of the Bible you can read today, and if you've got them at home, you can go and check, will say them. So I'll read you something that only came across yesterday. Some of you are familiar with Bill Cooper, he's written a number of very good books, and this is his latest book, speaking about the authority of the New Testament. He just says this, he says, and you may be aware that there's these two individuals, Westcott and Hall, who set about this task of translating a modern version of the New Testament, it led to the revised version. He said this, he said, when the apostate scholars Westcott and Hall set about their self-appointed task of undermining the textus receptus of the New Testament, they did their job thoroughly. The immediate result in their own day was a profound distrust toward the New Testament at all levels of society in both Britain and America. They must have been astonished at their own success. Their revised version of 1881 achieved at a stroke what the Jesuits had been labouring toward for centuries. And the critics have never looked back. From the RV there soon sprang a plethora of editions which all laid claim to the title of New Testament, but which were and are mere revisions of the old Gnostic perversions of the scriptures. It has been estimated that since 1890, with the appearance of the Derby Bible itself, a revision of the RV, there have been just over some 200 new revisions put into English. And he goes and lists a whole bunch of them. And talks then of the fact that he believes that this is, and has been a, a satanic attempt to undermine the authority of Scripture. Because there's so many versions now that will tell you that this verse or that verse was not in the most authoritative manuscripts. That's a matter of opinion. And this opinion actually can be shredded by competent scholastic study. No, no, this verse is as we have translated. And actually, we have a, a fail-safe. You know in the book of Revelation, at the end of it, John warns about people that would add or take away. Well, that's the last thing, effectively, John writes in terms of his vision. But then he returns back to the beginning of the book to write our prologue. And it's interesting because in verse 5 of chapter 1, as John's writing the prologue, after the whole book is finished, he goes down to write the introduction before it's kind of sent off. He says, verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that had loved us and washed us from our sins in, uh, in his own blood. And verse 6 says, and has made us kings and priests to God his Father, to him be glory forever and ever. He's quoting effectively from chapter 5. And there's none of the manuscript versions that have any doubt over Revelation 1, 5 and 6. Just be careful what you read, because some of the modern translations are very, very deceptive and they come from a bad, bad source. But we have this great hope that before the tribulation begins, we will be in heaven. And let's get back to the, the central point here, that we are praising Jesus because he was slain for us and he's redeemed us. 
to God by his blood out of every kindred, tongue and people and nation. He's made us unto our God, kings and priests. Look at that. You know, it doesn't matter what qualifications, what O-levels or GCSEs or whatever else you've got in this life. You've been given the rank of a king and a priest before God. And we're told that we shall reign on the earth. You know, because it's not about your ability, it's about what he can do through you. Verse 11, I behold and heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. John trying to express here as best he can, an innumerable company. Myriads and myriads. We just can't begin to imagine all around the throne praising God. Saying with a loud voice, and I'm sure with that many it would have been a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. I don't think we're going to grow tired in heaven of singing those things. And by the way, when we get there, when this scene happens, when we get that moment, when you look upon the Lamb as it had been slain, when we're all falling down before the throne, when you start to see these angels, these myriads of angels get ready, you know what they're going to say. And we're going to say, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. Jesus is the one who has claimed the title of this earth back. And we will be so grateful for eternity. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessing and honour and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders, here we go again, fell down and worshipped him that lives forever and ever. Just an incredible scene. This is one of my favourite chapters in the entire Bible because this is reality. We'll be here before very long. You know, you look around the world today, you see the way things are going. It's not going to be long. I had the privilege last night of just being part of a, a worship, worship celebration back in Kent. And I just felt such a call to get ready. You know, and what was said from the front was echoing what I was feeling in my heart, that the Lord is coming soon for his people. We need to get ready. We need to get excited. We need to be reading this chapter. These are our instructions of what's going to happen. You know, you go to a wedding and there's a, a big board as you walk into the, the hall and it's kind of the seating plan and you're going to, you check it out, you work out where you're going to sit, what you're going to be doing. I went to my niece's graduation a month or so ago and there was again, there was seating plan and somebody got up at the front before it all started and said, right, this is what's going to happen and when the people were processing, that's when you stand up and then you've got to sit down, you've got to do this and well, read this chapter because when we get there, this is what we're going to be doing. Learn these words off by heart so that we can declare them. Don't be going around going, what, what are we saying? What? <laughs> it's here. And we'll be worshipping him that lives forever and ever. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for this time that we've been able to spend with your word. Oh Lord, please just fill us with such a, an excitement of these things, the reality 
This isn't just some fictional story that somebody wrote down. Lord, this is the future revealed in advance for us to know. These things really will happen. And Lord, very soon you will return. And you'll come back for that bride that you have purchased. Jesus, thank you that you are worthy. Thank you that you were able to come and redeem us, to purchase us back. But Lord, it was not because of the land itself, but that you could take a bride. Oh Lord, what a privilege that you wanted us. And so Lord, may we want you just as much. Lord, give us a hunger and a thirst for you, for everything that is righteous, everything that is holy, and remove from our lives and our minds and our hearts anything that is of this world. For Lord, we have nothing here. Lord, may we be like Abraham, who didn't want to, Lord, put down any firm foundations here. Lord, this is not our home. Lord, get us excited about where we're going, because that's our home, with you. Lord, be with us for the rest of this day as we go through this week. And Lord, keep before our minds that vision of the Lamb that had been slain. Jesus, you who bore our sin, because of your incredible love for us. May we love you with our lives. We ask in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.